resists him, commands him to oppose the false teachers and their doctrine. Remember, the implication of this was not only for Timothy, but for the man of God, for the minister of every generation, for the elders of every church, and ultimately for every believer in Christ and how we are to deal with false teachers. Remember that what we saw here is that false teachers are to be confronted. And so he was to confront the false teachers and he was to correct the false teachers, their, correct their doctrine. And there is this process of exposing the false teaching of the, of, of the false teachers. He was to expose their doctrine and Paul would expose it by contrasting it. Contrasting it, that is, truth versus error. So what we saw was confronting, correcting, and contrasting by exposing. You remember the words of John Calvin speaking of the role of the minister as he would comment upon, again, Paul's words, in this case, to Titus, over in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, and it was this, where Calvin said, quote, the pastor, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both, end quote. And it's that reality that Paul had already spoken to the Ephesian elders five years previously before this is taking place here in 1 Timothy. The Ephesian eldership, if you remember, the elders of the church had been warned by Paul back over in Acts chapter 20, Paul had passed through that region once already. Remember, it was there in Ephesus. It was a seaport, so it was easy for him to pass through. It was a, a busy city, a popular area. It was there. If you look at the, the Asia Minor, what we call now Turkey, it is there on the eastern seaboard. It would be there, which is that it was known to be a seaport, but also there was the great temple of Diana or Artemis there. So there was pagan worship and a pagan city. Paul passes through there, speaks in the synagogue, Many wants him to come back, but he moves on. But at a later date, he comes back through. He, he will begin to teach in the synagogue. Later, he'll speak in, the, in, the, uh, in, a, in a great hall. And there, people are converted. A church is established. At some point, even an eldership is established. But in Acts 20, before he departs, he warns them. There's like a prophetic word from Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says this. In Acts 20, verse 28 and 29, and this sets the context for what we're seeing here in 1 Timothy. Paul said to the elders, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So he's charging the elders there to be shepherds, under shepherds, under the Lord Jesus, and to protect the flock, to watch over the flock. Because verse 29, Paul said, For I know this, that after my departure, he said, savage wolves. That's how he, that's how he speaks of the false teachers. He speaks of the church as sheep, as a flock, and false teachers as savage wolves. He says, there, after my departure, savage wolves, verse 29, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And so we're reminded there. You remember from last week? We're reminded that false doctrine has the potential of damning the soul, of leading many astray to their condemnation. And so he warns them to watch the flock, to guard the flock. And so as an apostolic representative and a minister of the gospel, Timothy was to guard the flock of God as a faithful shepherd. Timothy was to point out error. He was to confront, to correct the false teachers, and if, and if necessary, exercise church discipline. And so we ended with this contrast of truth and error last week. Again, Paul, in correcting the false teachers and calling upon Timothy to correct them, he, he will contrast the false doctrine of the false teachers, their error versus truth. That is, Paul wants us to understand that doctrine, biblical teaching, affects our thinking and therefore affects our life, our living. If the doctrine is in error, it will lead to error in thinking and error in living. And so Paul and Timothy know something of this false teaching and the results of it. And Paul contrasts the results, the false teaching versus apostolic teaching. Watch this. Beginning in verse 3, when he's contrasting their error, that is, of the false teachers, to the truth that Timothy was to teach and what Paul had been teaching. In verse 3, he speaks of this another doctrine. You remember that? Another doctrine. So false teachers will teach, number one, another doctrine. That is, it's another doctrine other than apostolic doctrine. Verse 3, that you may charge some Remember, that was a military command. You, you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. This was the word that we get heterodoxy from. Heterodoxy. That term used throughout the church, many believe that it is here. Here in 1 Timothy 1.3, that it was the Apostle Paul who first coined that word heterodoxy by using it here. Teach no other doctrine. That is, the false teachers were teaching a doctrine that was a deviation from apostolic doctrine. It was heterodoxy. It was a deviation from orthodoxy. And Paul said, correct them from doing that. And as Christians today, 2,000 years later, that now have the full canon of Scripture, that have the New Testament Scriptures given to us, that is, the writings of the apostles, for us, that source that was being developed in the early church as the canon was coming together, as Paul was writing books like 1 Timothy, and now we have it together, 
For us, we need to understand that the source of apostolic doctrine is our Bibles. It's the Bible. Apostolic doctrine, in particular, the New Testament, but it's the Bible. And so we need to understand to deviate, to deviate from apostolic instruction is to deviate from biblical teaching. To deviate from apostolic doctrine is to deviate from biblical instruction. This is why the pulpit ministry of the church and our tradition, not just covenant tradition, but in this long tradition of church history, is to be a ministry of exposition, of verse by verse, line upon line, teaching upon teaching. That is, it's teaching the text. It's teaching scripture. It's teaching the Bible. And so this is the source of apostolic doctrine. And let's be sure to understand, if it is slightly off, even if it's slightly off, it can lead to enormous errors. Just ask, just ask an architect or an engineer the problems that will result in lines not being straight. They may look pretty close at the start, but then you move 100 feet down and you find out you have a problem. A little, think of it this way. Not only would you have a wall, a building that's not plumb, that's not in line, that's not fit to be inhabited, but it's kind of like saying, I'm just digesting a little poison at a time. Right? That's the danger of a little false doctrine, a little teaching, and just a little off. But the truth of God, rather than... And, and Paul will use a word throughout this letter. When he speaks of sound doctrine, it also has to do with healthy doctrine, doctrine that strengthens... That is, the truth of God is to strengthen and edify the people of God in the knowledge of Christ, in Christ-likeness. However, the doctrine of the false teachers, they were propagating, and notice the, the, the words that Paul will use, lies, fables, myths, endless genealogies. Verse 4, nor give heed, nor give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, these, these fables, these, these myths, these lies, they were probably some kind of early Jewish myths that were popular in the ancient world. Jewish myths, extra-biblical myths. Uh, in, in our modern setting, we would think of such religious writings in the way of myths of being something like the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, which is filled with myths and lies. And there was some, some kind of fascination, notice, with endless genealogies, maybe trying to connect themselves with a certain tribe of the people of Israel. 
and endless genealogies. They were obsessed with such things rather than the truth that would lead to godly edification. But the lies, the false teachers, what they were teaching led to endless disputes. You see the differences? The truth, biblical truth, builds up, unifies, strengthens. False doctrine tears down, weakens, dissolves unity, breaks down unity. Now, apostolic truth, when received by faith, it is to always lead to edification. Listen, listen what I mean by that. Listen to Paul in another place, writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. When he writes to them in Ephesians 4, listen what he says. After speaking of those, those that have been gifted and called to be those men that would expound upon the word, the, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, those that would expound upon the faithful word of God. He says that is for the, the, the perfecting of the saints, verse 12, for the, for the perfecting of the saints. And those men have been called to do this by, through the work of the ministry. But it's for the edifying, verse 12, the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 13 what does it do? It brings us to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the, notice this, the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, here he'll speak of false doctrine, so that we no longer be children tossed, no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Verse 15. Now notice his language here. But speaking the truth in what? In love. That we may grow up. We may mature. That we may be edified in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share, and he does it again, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. Notice his language again, of the edifying of itself in what? In love. And remember that, in love. So again, when you look at what he's saying in 1 Timothy, and as he begins to contrast it, and think about what he's written to the Ephesians, like in Ephesians chapter 4, you can see that false, the false teachers and their false doctrine, it tears down. It tears down rather than builds up or edifies. Now, in verse 5, he's going to speak of the purpose of apostolic doctrine, of what it does. In fact, what all sound teaching should do. Yes, doctrine can divide, but is it a division based upon truth versus error? It divides because someone's holding to error. But when it's, when it's someone by faith receiving the truth, holding to the truth, what is the result of it? What is the purpose of it? Verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Here's the purpose of apostolic doctrine. 
and should be of all sound biblical teaching. Now, in verse 5, the purpose of the commandment, now, he's not talking about the commandments like God's law that we're going to see in a moment. His point there is this word commandment here is relating back to the charge, the charge to teach no other doctrine, the, the cling to apostolic doctrine back in verse 3. The false teachers do not understand by deviating from apostolic doctrine the false teachers do not understand the proper intention of the law of God. They don't understand how apostolic doctrine, the faith being faithful to apostolic doctrine and the truth of it, what it leads to. But here in verse 5, he tells us, in fact, that all biblical instruction, especially when we think of the moral, ethical instruction of God's word, it is to lead to, to lead to the building up of the people of God in Christ-likeness and in love. That is Christ-like love. It's to promote the exercise of biblical, godly, Christ-like love. Not the love of the world, but godly love, biblical love. Um, they apparently had some kind of misunderstanding of the law. But yet when you would ask the apostles or if you were to ask even the Lord Jesus, the ultimate end, the purpose of the law, what did that look like? You would hear words like this, Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. If there's any other commandment are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 of Romans 13, love does no harm to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, this is the teaching of the apostles and Jesus. The law is fulfilled in loving God and loving neighbor. However, verse 5, we need to understand that that love that we're speaking of is not a love that is produced, though, by the unbelieving world or the unregenerate heart. He wants us to understand this. Notice verse 5 again. Now the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of his charge to not deviate from apostolic doctrine, from the truth, that the purpose of that is love. And it's love from, notice that word, from. Love from a pure heart from a good conscience, from a sincere heart. These are biblical descriptors. When you, say, when you say from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, these are biblical descriptors of saving faith. And it's the result of the Holy Spirit and its work of renewal in the heart. Again, listen to the Apostle Peter. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23. Listen to what he says. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth 
through the Spirit, insincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so his charge of teaching the truth is contrasted with the error of the false teachers. And you might say it this way. Doctrine bears fruit, and you can know the trustworthiness of a doctrine by the fruit that it will bear. And Paul says apostolic doctrine has its end in Christ. It will lead to Christ-likeness, and it leads to Christ-like love as the ethic and life of the people of God. The false teacher's doctrine leads to endless discussions of endless genealogies and myths and disputes. You see the difference? It tears down rather than edifies, unifies, and builds up. Now, another thing that's interesting here, when you read that statement there in verse 4 and verse 5, he's contrasting Notice the twofold contrast that Paul's using. It's as if he's saying there's this unstable, insincere truth, myths, lies, endless genealogies, right? You can, you can stand over in that stuff, but it's not a solid ground. It, it just leads to this endless dispute. Or you can stand upon apostolic doctrine, which is a place of God's word. One leads to disputes, does not edify. The other is received by saving faith. And it results in biblical love. Do you see the difference? Now, then notice what he says about the proper use. In fact, verse 6, he says, from which some have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk, vain babbling. But verse 7, now we get right to the heart of the matter. Verse 7. And again, this helps us to begin to understand something of what's going on in the way of the false teaching. It has to do with the proper use of the law. Verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So if we could say something about the false teachers, they depart from apostolic doctrine to another doctrine. Their doctrine does not edify. It does not lead to Christ-likeness or love. Rather, and, and it has, as we're seeing here, it has a misunderstanding of the proper use of the law. Now, that should begin to tell us something. They desire to be teachers of the law. That is a typical word that's used there for 
like a rabbi, which in and of itself would not be a bad thing, teachers of the law. But the problem is they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. That is probably the first hint of what Paul is going to contrast it, contrast it with over in chapter 3. Because over in chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to talk about those who desire the office of overseer. Now, <clears throat> point of application here. We should consider. In, in reform circles, um, Our, our doctrine, our theology, our teaching can be considered heady, bookish, right? And often it leads to a lot of chattering, debate, all kinds of stuff on the internet, right? It can lead to that. Some of it may be okay, a lot of it not okay. <clears throat> you can have within these circles, <clears throat> you can quickly have young men who have come out of like uh, broad evangelicalism and they come to understand the Reformed faith and they've read a little bit and they've got an understanding of it. And they're excited about that. We usually call it the cage stage, right? Yeah. I remember David Miller saying that every, every young man that becomes a Calvinist needs to be locked up for about three years before he's let go and this to settle down. I remember when he told me and listening to me preach one day, he rolled up in his wheelchair and he said, Clevenger, you don't have to ring all five bells every time you preach. <laughs> But understand something here. Understanding something and having a knowledge of something excited about it doesn't mean you're an elder. Knowledge in and of itself doesn't mean you're an elder or you're qualified to be an elder. And we get to chapter 3, we see that, yes, they ought to know, they ought to have a knowledge of the mysteries of God. Yes, even the deacon, they ought to be apt to teach. Yes, but there's far more in that qualification that has to do with the implications of sound doctrine in the way of life and integrity and character, right? There's one thing of instructing the truth. There's another thing in shepherding the flock. Those are different things. Yes, you need to feed the flock. But do you have a heart for the flock? Do you love the flock? Are you willing to lay down your life for the flock? Do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference there. One can lead to a kind of self-promotion. And one is a humble service. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference there. So we want to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to be careful and consider these things. 
But these men, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. Now the law is good, verse 8. We know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, he says. In some church tradition, some local churches, they act like the law to be kicked to the curb, like it's some kind of evil thing or something. But the law is from God. It's good. As Paul says in Romans 7, 12. Romans 7, 12. Therefore, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and just and good. And there are proper uses of the law. But let's be careful that we understand that. So that we're not like these teachers, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. Now, I would suggest that they probably, and Paul's probably saying, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm, because probably mixed into all of these Jewish myths, into these endless genealogies, there's also a form of almost like Galatia, the, the Galatian heresy. There's this legalism that's inserted in there, which is central to all false teaching, some form of legalism that's in there. That is, now it becomes not that the law, and we speak of the, the functions of the law. Yes, the law reveals to us the holiness of God. The law reveals to us our lack of holiness. The law reveals to us that we are sinners. The law reveals to us our need of Christ. The law, yes, functions as a, as a, and sets before us a standard of, of, of right living, of how we are to, yes, love neighbor and love God. Yes. But it's an entirely different thing. When the law is set forth and it is said, and if you obey the law, you'll be in right standing with God. If you obey the law, you can merit salvation. It becomes a, a work righteousness position. In the Galatian heresy, it was a plus. It was this plus thing. And again, that's uh, something often uh, that we find with false teachings. It's, it is, yes, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is a good thing. You should have faith in Christ plus obey the law. Be circumcised. And if you have faith in Christ and I'm circumcised, you, you can be made right with God. And it ends up being justification by works. Which is contrary to the gospel, as Paul would say in Galatians 1. So desiring to be teachers of the law rather than the true faith is what they were. They didn't understand the proper use of the law. They were holding probably to a form of legalism, of justification by works. Now Luther the reformer Luther would express the danger of this and the proper use of the law in his lectures on, on the book of Galatians, especially in his introduction in the book of Galatians, his commentary in the book of Galatians. Um, on this, he would speak of two uses. It would later develop in Lutheran theology to that full bore three use. There's places where Luther is implying that third use. By the time it moves over into the more Calvinistic type reformed churches, that threefold use of the law becomes very clear. 
But Luther would say that the law was given for two uses. He, he said there was a political or civil use. That is, the law was to bridle and restraint the restraint of the uncivilized. And we should understand that Western culture, our laws, the, the, our society and culture in the West, it, it just didn't come out of thin air. It was undergirded by Judeo-Christian beliefs and law, natural law, the law of God. That's why we, that's why we honor life. We don't kill. That's why we, it's illegal to steal. Those things undergird the political and civil life in the West. But that's collapsing now. That's collapsing now. As, as Christianity is no longer in vogue, everything related to Christianity is being pushed aside. And so if you are a Christian and if we are a church that sets forth the law of God, we look like something with a third eye now to the world around us and to the culture around us. Right? That's what happens. But that's okay. That's okay. We're not here to please the world. We're here to tell the world of the good news of the gospel, that they might be saved. We're here to be faithful to God's word and truth, right? But that's the first use that Luther said. He said the second was this. Luther said the second was this, <clears throat> that the principal purpose of the law was theological or spiritual. He said, I love his language here. He said the law, it is a mighty hammer. A mighty hammer to crush self-righteousness of human beings. Think of that when we gather on the Lord's day and we confess the law of God. If as God's people, you got a little self-righteous during the week, you thought you were doing pretty good, and then we show up and we read the law, it just crumbles. <laughs> and then you just acknowledge your sin and guilt and confess it. And that is a good thing, isn't it? It strips from us all self-righteousness. Then Luther says, for it shows them, us, their sin. So that by the recognition of sin, we may be humbled, frightened, worn down, and so may long for, the, for grace and for the blessed offspring. He means Christ. And that's why not only do we need to hear the law, but our children who may not yet know Christ, we want them to hear the law on a regular basis as we catechize them and teach them that they grow up hearing the law of God so that they may, by the operation of the Spirit, come to a recognition of sin, that they might be humbled, they might be frightened, they might be worn down, and that they would begin to long for the blessed gospel of Christ as their only hope. That is our desire for our children, right? And that is the desire for our own souls. Calvin would speak of the threefold function of the law as that which is punitive to condemn sinners, to drive them to Christ, a deterrent that is to restrain evildoers out in the way of the culture around us, and to educate, to, to teach, to exhort believers to properly love God and neighbor, of course. And there's that threefold division of the law, moral law, ceremonial law, judicial law. And if we get these categories confused, which is happening right now in the church, broadly in America, as we're watching the, the culture collapse, 
you're watching people run to one side and they just deny the law. They believe that every perversion, everything against, we're just going to embrace that. And on the other side, they're going to the other extreme. So what, what do we find here? We got to do something. Things are collapsing. And then they, be, they begin to grab like the judicial law of Israel and say, maybe if we, here, we'll establish that in America and everything will be better. <laughs> no. No. The state of course, church. The state of historical, biblical Christianity. The state of the course. All right. So they, these false teachers, didn't have a proper understanding of the law. But the law is good, verse 8. It is good if one uses it lawfully. Now notice what he says beginning in verse, verse 9. Knowing this. Now he's going to tell us a function of law. Paul, this is not Paul's exhaustive word on the function of the law, but he gives us a function here. Knowing this, like, like what Luther said here, that the law is not made for a righteous person. That is... It's not made for the righteous, for the saint, but it's made for the sinner. That is to drive him to Christ, to make him see his sin. And so what, what Paul does here, he begins to, again, as we've seen in other places, he'll begin to break down the two tables of the law concerning the first four commandments that relate to God and the last six that relate to, to man. And he begins to unfold these, but he, he takes them to their extreme ends. Watch what he does here. Knowing this, verse 9, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the, the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane. There, he, he's moving through that, that first table of the law, and that his thought is those who will not worship the one true God, those that will not bend the knee to the one true God, those that profane his name, this is them. And then he'll, he'll move then to the second table of the law when he starts going, notice his language there in verse 9, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers. Just as when we studied the Ten Commandments, each of those commandments becomes a springboard that moves across the pages of Scripture that has implications that are broad. So to honor mother and father is the beginning of understanding, honoring institutions established by God, those things of authority. But also, what would be one of the worst ways to not honor your father and mother? What would be one of the worst ways to, 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 to commit that sin of to kill and to not honor father and mother? How about just, just couple these together? How about if I just killed mother and father? And so he has the murder of fathers and mother and, and murders of mothers for manslayers. And then like Bashanach commit adultery becomes the springboard in the Bible against every sexual perversion and sin. And he pushes right into that. Verse 10 for fornicators, for sodomites or homosexuals. And then for stealing, he moves to kidnappers and man stealers, which would was popular in the ancient world, even is in this 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 day with human trafficking, where we see that uh, in the ancient world children could be kidnapped slaves could be stolen but for kidnappers and then look at this for liars for perjurers for if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine in other words all of these things this is what the law is for to condemn man and his sin now watch this watch what he does here now thirdly they didn't understand the proper use of the law. The law 
is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners. And then he says this here, verse 10. And if there is any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who is committed to my trust. We're out, of, we're out of time here, but consider this. What he's saying here, listen closely, a proper understanding of the law is not contrary to the ethics that result from the gospel. In fact, our confession says these things, what sweetly, sweetly, you may remember that language, comply, right? They're not contrary to one another. The renewal of heart, the redemption that has come to us in Christ leads to an ethic of what? Of loving God and loving neighbor. Now, loving God and loving neighbor is not the gospel. That's law. But the gospel, the renewal of heart, leads to an ethic of loving God and loving neighbor. And the false teacher's doctrine didn't do that. It didn't do that. Again, doctrine has fruit. And you can often determine the veracity of a doctrine by the fruit that it, that it bears and that it results in. And if there is anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, that is, as an apostle... Jeffrey Wilson would say a correct understanding of, of the true function of the law is, a, is an essential element in the effective proclamation of the gospel. There's to be a proper understanding of law and gospel. Ethic, the, the, the imperatives and the indicatives. That which we are to do, to obey, but that which is to be received, trusted, received by faith, gospel. But we're reminded here also that life and doctrine, that, that doctrine is not just head knowledge. Doctrine settles in the soul. It, it comes to the head. Yes, it is to be, it doesn't bypass the brain. It is to be understood. And, and it is to be understood. Its implications are to be understood. But it settles in the soul and the heart. And it results in a life lived. False doctrine leads to a wrong kind of living. Sound doctrine leads to a sound kind of living. And here the apostle is reminding us of that. And we'll pick up next week, beginning at verse 12. This will cause the apostle to slide right into his understanding of the gospel of grace. Before he will be finished that section, he'll speak that he himself was a blasphemer and one who persecuted the church. And yet, verse 15, he will say, And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so Paul was driven to the gospel of Christ by the law of God through the operation of the Spirit. He came to see himself as a sinner. 
He came to obtain this mercy that was given to him by the long-suffering and gracious activity of God toward him, heart toward him. Christ came to save sinners like Paul. And he came and saved sinners like us, like you and like me. And so this morning, as we consider these words, not only are the elders and the leadership in the church exhorted to shepherd the flock faithfully, are we to begin to weigh these matters of sound doctrine and the results of how it affects the way that we live together and that faithful teaching should edify the church, strengthen the church, build the church, and it should result in Christ-like love in this edification toward one another. But also we are warned about the danger of false doctrine, its destructive nature. We're also reminded here this morning that of the proper understanding of the, of the law would lead us and is not contrary to the ethics of the gospel. And so as we come to Christ by faith, not by the works of the law, but by faith, faith alone. We are trusting in Christ and that by it we are forgiven by our, of our violation of not obeying the law as we ought to. Our sins are forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ through the work of Christ on the cross. Our, we are reconciled to God through the Son. Will you this morning embrace him as a sinner, as a lawbreaker? Will you trust in him and his death for sinners like you. And as we come to the table, we see in sign and symbol the work of Christ for us. This gospel for sinners is set forth in the bread and the cup, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus that becomes that which sustains us as we eat and drink. It symbolizes the sustaining life of our spirit and soul because of Christ, Christ for us. And so we see it in this table. So let us pray this morning. Let us give thanks for the glorious gospel. Let us this morning give thanks for Christ. Let us give thanks for the word and for this table. Let us come confessing our sins, eating and drinking that which Christ has given us himself by his work. Let us pray.